Ooh, any questions? So the question was, what is the role of hardship uh, in the practice? And it seems to be such an integral part, uh, and particularly mentioning the teachings of Ajahn Chah and kind of the lifestyle. In one way, you could say that it's the total essence of the path if you translate hardship as dukkha. You know, uh, and so all Four Noble Truths revolve around that, the experience of it, the cause of it, the ending of it, and the way. Um, Sometimes in thinking back to uh, the practice conditions in Asia, compared to the practice conditions here, there was a lot of <laughs> relative hardship, you know, just in terms of uh, everything. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, uh, I was much younger then, so it was <laughs> it was easier. Uh, but as you've probably experienced, Conditions do not have to be, external conditions do not have to be ascetic for hardships to arise. Because there's the inevitable, you know, discomfort of the body and all the dukkha of the mind. Uh, So I don't think that uh, that much is lost in terms of the uh, physical surroundings. You know, in whatever way we experience dukkha, uh, certainly the the physical discomfort, which is mostly what conditions in Asia were about, um, but which we experience here just, you know, in our experience of the body, um, as you know, it teaches us a lot. It teaches us about patience. It teaches us about constancy <laughs> and perseverance. It teaches us about selflessness. You know, anatta in that uh, we see it's ungovernable. You know, and we've talked a lot about this. The, the nature of the body, the nature of the elements, is to express themselves in their own ways, and they often... Uh, involve discomfort, you know, with a whole range of intensity. And so in that sense, uh, our relationship to that, you could almost say that is the path, you know, because it uh, so points out our own level of reactivity. You know, as I mentioned, I think the other morning, the Buddhist statement about as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, Liberation is impossible. So our relationship to what's unpleasant, whether it's the physical surroundings and you know the kind of hardships that may have been there in Asia, or what we experience here, uh, 
our relationship to that is the very essence of the path. You know, are we identified with it? Are we reactive to it? Can we be open to it as empty phenomena rolling on? Sometimes it's challenging. You know, but for those of you who are, would like to explore that edge, uh, there are always ways to do it, you know. <laughs> uh, just e- even in simple ways, in uh, the eight precepts, maybe in sleeping less, you know, things like that. Yes. Did everybody hear the question? No. Okay. Uh, so the, the question was about how one can engage passionately with life, you know, and in things that are important to one without getting caught up sometimes in the suffering that comes from uh, fear, expectation, striving. What other things did you mention? Arrogance, pride, guilt, (laughs) the whole list of unwholesome mental factors. There's actually a very simple, uh, one of the phrases Munindraji would often use about the practice, he said this so many times, it's simple but not easy. So the response to that question is simple but not easy. And I first connected with it when I was a freshman in college. I was taking a course in Eastern philosophy. Didn't know anything. I had no knowledge at all about Buddhism or about anything. Uh, (laughs) 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 And so we were reading the Bhagavad Gita, you know, which is one of the great uh, Hindu classics. And there was one phrase in the Bhagavad Gita that even as kind of, you know, I was 16, 17 years old, didn't know anything. But this one phrase resonated so deeply, I think it was kind of a harbinger of the rest of my life. It said, to act without attachment to the fruit of the action. You know, so, and again, I really didn't have any clear sense even of really what it meant but something resonated really deeply. I think that is precisely how we can act passionately, you know, with full engagement, but to see whether there's attachment to the outcome, because we can't control the outcome. You know, so many elements go into conditions, go into how things are gonna turn out, And what we're doing is just one part of it. If we're not attached to the outcome, 
then I think a lot of those unwholesome states fall away. You know, and we're just there, and we're doing what we're doing, and we're motivated by as wholesome motivation as possible. But it frees the mind from so many unwholesome uh, elements that can come in. So it's worth looking, and that that this in itself is its own investigation. Right? As we're engaged, are we attached to the outcome or not? You know, and to really look at that on on all the various levels of subtlety. And to remind oneself that no matter how worthy the cause and how passionately engaged we are, how things will unfold is ultimately out of our control. And so really to take, you know, to reflect on that and take that in deeply. To act without attachment to the fruit of the action, to the result of the action. <coughs> and it's that, that doesn't mean we don't have an aspiration for a result, but are we attached to it? You know, and that attachment, like any other attachment, just is the cause of a lot of suffering. Okay, so the question was about karma and it really being defined as volitional activity and that the volition, depending on the motivation, will, will bring about a certain result. You know, and easy to see it in certain kinds of actions, but difficult to see how, either how it's working or how we can become aware of it with regard to thought, kind of the intention to think. Um, <clears throat> I think there are two elements here. One is, to the degree that we become more mindful of thought, the karmic impact uh, of simply having the thought is very minimal. So it doesn't need, I don't think it needs to be an active concern. You know, if, if we're having thoughts in the mind, and even if they're quite, we could say, negative thoughts, but we're actually mindful of it, that, that has, that's like a line in water. You know, it doesn't really have much impact or bring about much result. The results become more powerful if we're not mindful of the thought and we give expression to them, either in, you know, in word or in action. So that having been said, I think you can relax. <laughs> At least with regard to the content, if you're mindful. So that can be a, you know, a, another little uh, motivating force to, okay, can I be aware of the thoughts that are going through the mind? Um, there are times, and perhaps you've experienced it, when the mind is very quiet, you know, and there's, there's not much thinking going on, 
there are times when we actually can pick up about to think. You know, that's quite subtle. And as I say, it's not, uh, it's not necessary in terms of, you know, our karmic unfolding. And I think this is really important because um, one of the ways, one of the very seductive ways that we're not mindful of thought is when we are judging or have aversion to the content of the thoughts that are arising. You know, so we all have, you know, different kinds of thoughts and some are wholesome and beautiful and some are not. Some are unwholesome. And and a common tendency is to see those unwholesome thoughts and instead of simply being mindful of thinking, the habitual tendency is to judge those thoughts and to judge ourselves for having them and to have aversion towards them. And it's precisely that uh, which is keeping us from being mindful that it's just a thought. You know, so you really want to be careful not to be judging the unwholesome content thoughts that arise in the mind. Right? the liberating relationship to them is not in judging them or judging ourselves, but just saying, it's just a thought. It's just, you know, it's like a sound arising and passing. That's why practicing seeing the emptiness of thought as a phenomenon is so important. The content of the thought takes on greater importance when we act on them. And so that, that's when we really want to discern the wholesome from the unwholesome. The teachers have talked about uh, the distinction between uh, desire that's unwholesome and desire that's wholesome. But I haven't heard a lot about the distinction between aversion that's unwholesome and aversion that's wholesome. In the discourses, there's a lot about, and it relates to your answer to the last question, um, like when there's strong heliotype in the mind, uh, how the mind pulls back, shrinks back. Uh, uh, fear is a kind of aversion, you know, there's a fear of wrong uh, and, and there's lots, lots of other yeah. Right. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> how to distinguish between wholesome aversion and unwholesome aversion and uh, the comment being that in the text, you know, there are many mind states uh, like in the Pali Hiri Otapa, which, you know, is often translated, in English it's a little awkward translation, but as moral shame or moral dread, fear of wrongdoing, the problem is that as we translate from the Pali into English, we could imagine that phrase, fear of wrongdoing, to equate that with aversion, because mostly fear is, is an aspect of aversion. But actually, those mindsets, it's not aversion. It's wise discernment 
and proper response to discerning wisely. This is unwholesome and there is that pulling back from wanting to do it. But that's not an aversive mind state, that's actually wisdom. And that's why hiri otapa, you know, that's called moral shame or moral dread or conscience or self-respect. There's so many different ways to translate that into English. They are called guardians of the world. You know, th- those two mental factors, because they are a, they are a protection, that self-respect, that we, we actually respect ourselves enough not to want to do unwholesome things that will cause us suffering. You know, and conscience about not harming others. That's a very different mind state than aversion. And so I think that discernment is really important. We could call it wise aversion. Yeah, and the Dalai Lama, uh, you know, I've read certain places where he talks about a wise fear. You know, so we could talk about it like that. Uh, he said if, you know, you go to the ocean and you, you see a sign, dangerous undertow, so there's a kind of wise fear. You know, okay, this would not be such a good idea to jump into. You know, but it's not really the fear of aversion. You know, it's 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 discernment. Um. Mm-hmm. Okay, so <clears throat> how how does one uh, integrate the insight into impermanence and the unreliability of things when the experience of anatta is not fully realized and we're personalizing it? <laughs> you know, and we see the the insecurity of it all and it can be destabilizing. So this could be a whole hour's Dharma talk. So first I'll start with just an image which describes various stages of opening to the impermanent unreliability of phenomena. So the example used was maybe if somebody, you know, jumping out of a plane and at first experiences the excitement of free fall, you know, and people do, you know, people go and pay money to do that. (laughs) So the, the kind of opening to the impermanence of everything and breaking apart the solidity of things, uh, at first can be exhilarating. You know, it's like a whole new world begins to open up. It's like, can you imagine the excitement of the scientists who first looked through a microscope 
and just saw a whole different world than the world of apparent perception. I mean, exhilarating. So, person jumps out, excited, exhilarates, but then they realize they don't have a parachute. <laughs> so, psh, that's when the fear, the anxiety, the terror, the, all that takes place. And this is a stage, you know, that we go through as we open to the fact that there is no solidity to anything, but we're still not completely realized in selflessness. So there's a lot of, as you say, destabilization, and it takes, uh, takes a certain tenderness in the practice at that time, you know, to uh, allow one to enter into that stage of understanding uh, with balance, with care, with soft, knowing that it's a difficult time. You're realizing, uh-oh, no parachute. <laughs> and, ho- and at those times, particularly having some good Dharma friends or teachers, you know, to be supportive in the understanding, yes, this is, this is a stage in practice, but it's not how things remain. So the next level of understanding jumps out, exhilarated, uh-oh, no parachute, fear, anxiety. But then the person comes to the realization there's no ground. So the fact that there's no parachute doesn't matter because there's not going to be a crash landing. You know? And that's when the mind comes to a place of great equanimity, you know, where it's just phenomena rolling on and the mind is completely non-reactive to that and actually in a place of great peace and calm. So there are these stages manifesting in this insight into impermanence. Okay, so that's one whole way of understanding it. Another whole uh, template, you know, for understanding our life and our practice is that the path is really, and the Buddha described this in quite a bit of detail, it's really the path of happiness. And the Buddha described seven, seven different kinds of happiness. And just, this is just an aside. Uh, in terms of the subtleties of uh, the Buddha's understanding, Munindraji once gave a three-hour talk on 21 kinds of silence. (laughs) 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 By the end of it, I want (laughs) three hours. (laughs) But So even though we're developing insight into impermanence and the Four Noble Truths and Dukkha and all of that, and at times it can be very challenging, the Buddha talked about the happiness of ordinary sense pleasures, that they do bring us happiness. They're they're not long-lasting, but he didn't deny that happiness. And he talked about the causes for that happiness to arise, which is generosity and sila. So there's a path to that. He talked about the happiness of concentration. When the mind is concentrated, 
you know, and really comes to a place of stillness, that is a more fulfilling kind of happiness than the happiness of the sense pleasures. And we know that, even maybe to a little extent, when you think of sense pleasures, no matter what they are, you know, beautiful music or delicious food or passionate sex or what else? (laughs) 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 You know, whatever it is, whatever your particular (laughs) mountain biking. (laughs) You know, we we could enjoy the happiness of that for a couple of hours, you know, for a day. I mean, you could, could you imagine having delicious food all day or listening to mu- beautiful music for days on end? No, the, the capacity for the pleasure, even of the most delightful sense pleasures, it's contained. And yet, Deepa Ma, for example, you know, a wonderful teacher, she could sit in samadhi for three days. She, was enjoy, she could enjoy the happiness of that concentrated sit. One time we were walking together in, in India, and she turned to me and she said, you should sit for two days. And she didn't mean a two-day retreat. She meant I should sit down and not get up <laughs> for two days. And I just left because it was... <laughs> unthinkable. And she just turned to me and she said, don't be lazy. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, lest you have any projections, (laughs) I did not sit for two days. But it is possible, you know, and even, you know, to a lesser extent than that, we can experience the happiness of concentration for extended periods of time. Which, which just illustrates that it's a more fulfilling kind of happiness than the happiness of sense pleasures. And the Buddha talked about how to achieve that. Then there's the happiness of insight, you know, where we really see with clarity the causes of suffering and manage to, even for short periods of time, unhook you know, from a particular source of suffering. That's a tremendous source of happiness in our lives to see that it's possible. You know, and then there's the happiness of uh, Nibbana, the unconditioned. It just goes on and on. So even as we're exploring kind of the impermanence and the instability and going through the various stages of that, you don't want to lose sight of the fact that this whole path is a path of happiness. And in our lives, we just tune into that and can actually... When we understand the causes for each of these kinds of happiness, then we cultivate them. So it's all of that. So to speak of concentration, uh, there must be many varieties in the text, but three stand out. The Kanika Samadhi, temporary Samadhi, or momentary, and then access concentration, Jhanak Samadhi. It seems like they're different Okay, so the question was about (coughs) 
three different uh, expressions of concentration. One is the kanika, or what's the momentary concentration, which we're really developing in Vipassana. There's access concentration, which is the mind in the neighborhood of jhanic absorption. And then there's the concentration of absorption. You know, so the question was just, are they different in nature or just different in intensity? <clears throat> it's a little of both. The momentary concentration can get very strong. And uh, Saito Pandita, uh, maybe this was mentioned, I don't know, uh, he really had a whole framework of understanding <coughs> the stages of Vipassana. He called them Vipassana jhanas because at different stages in the development of Vipassana, the level of concentration and the insights contained therein are analogous to the different jhanic states. So you shouldn't underestimate the strength of concentration that can come in Vipassana, in, in the momentary concentration. And in fact, access concentration, which technically refers to that neighborhood of jhana, actually we can experience in Vipassana at that time when the concentration and the mindfulness develop enough momentum that it's really going on by itself. You know, we're not making a huge effort anymore to be mindful or to stay steady. And this happens in Vipassana. So there's an equivalent of access concentration there. Uh, and then there is the absorption, you know, of jhana. It's, for those of you at the end of your retreat, <laughs> uh, the Buddha talked a lot about that, you know, the jhanic level absorption. At least contemporary teachers, there is a wide range of interpretation of what that state is. And different teachers have very different uh, descriptions of it. Um, and there's, there's a book actually by uh, Richard Shankman, simply called Samadhi. And he just, uh, he describes the range of interpretation of contemporary teachers, you know, of, of jhana. So in one sense, that full absorption is different, but again, there's a range of interpretation. But the quality of concentration is really the same. Concentration, it means steadiness of mind. The, the example given, the, the Buddha gave in the text, or maybe it's in the Vasudhimaga, where concentration is described as a candle flame in a windless place. You know, so it's just that steadiness where, where it's not flickering. So we this is being developed in the moment-to-moment -moment mindfulness. There are times when the mind gets very, very steady. Um, uh, I have a question about the um, 
first precept. So um, this summer I killed a deer tick. Um, I some fear or housing. And, um, you know, it's come up in the tree and I've been working with that and forgiveness practice and things like that. But what's risen for me is thinking about the times when you need yes. to choose yes. to kill. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the discernment? Yeah. So the question is about the first precept and having had a situation of, you know, killing a deer tick, you know, and then it coming up in the practice is, uh, you know, somewhat remorse, but also seeing that maybe there are situations where that seems the only alternative, whether, you know, especially uh, in health considerations, you know, what do you do with malaria mosquitoes? Or there, there are so many examples of that. Uh, so I think that in living as lay people in the world, we are going to come up against situations like that where it seems that in consideration of the greater good, it seems necessary to take a life. So what's important here, I think, is really as much as possible uh, looking at the motivation in one's minds and fostering the wholesome motivations. Now it may be that in the actual moment of taking the life, and this um, could be a possibility, you know, um, that there actually is a version in the mind, and that's what's motivating the action. But that could be surrounded by compassion, by discernment, by wisdom, by thinking of the greater good. Uh, and so I think that the... the uh, this is just my interpretation. I think the karmic consequences of something like that are very different than if one is killing out of greed or, or out of anger you know, or out of hatred. It seems to me a very different, or out of delusion. I'll tell you a sad story. So I was, <laughs> after college I joined the Peace Corps, and that's, that's where I went, they was, uh, sent me to Thailand to teach English, which is where I came into contact with Buddhism, so it was, you know, a great transforming event. But in Peace Corps training, <laughs> first the training was in DeKalb, Illinois in the winter to go to Thailand. <laughs> so just weather-wise, the training was way off. But then the last two weeks we spent at a Peace Corps training camp in Hawaii, in Waipio Valley on the Big Island, beautiful. 
But part of the training, and it's remarkable to me that it was part of it, uh, was that they had us kill chickens. Not, uh, not everybody, but that was that was part of it. And you know, m- most of us were going to teach English, so. <laughs> but I was twenty. <laughs> I was 20 years old, you know, and I remember in my mind, you know, that just, this, this is a perfect example of the power of delusion, you know. In my mind at that time, I had the thought, I'm a man, I should be able to do this, you know, and so that was the, that was the feeling, and even though there was a lot of you know, distaste, but so I did, and I had a picture, you know, of kind of me proudly holding this dead chicken that I just killed. Some years later, after the Peace Garden, I was in India and doing intensive practice, all of this came up. I mean, you think the deer tick is a problem. (laughs) 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 It's nothing. (laughs) Not nothing, but... (laughs) It was horrendous. I mean, it, I was just reliving that again and again, and I was kind of horrified, you know, at how both I could have done it and, and also the delusion, you know, that out of which that action came. And I just sat with it, you know, and it was days, and it was a purification, you know, of. It's just, and as I think was mentioned the other night, we've all done different unwholesome actions, and they do come up in the practice, you know, but if we're able to be with it and to feel the remorse, you know, and the regret, and, you know, it will have its own karmic consequences, you know, every time I get a neck pain, I think, (laughs) 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 okay. (laughs) And what's so interesting, I mean, what happened, did I tell the story? So, you know, they they would serve us, in, in, this was in Bodh Gaya and I was practicing, and in the evening they'd serve just very simple thing, the tea and maybe a couple of chapati and sometimes a hard-boiled egg. So in the midst of this coming up in my ha- mind in this incredibly vivid and uh, distressing way, uh, so they serve that... I crack open the egg, and there's an embryo. It, it was, I mean, this is the only time ever in my life that that happened, and it should happen when that's what was coming up. That's a little weird. <laughs> but, you know, but who, know, who knows how these things happen? Uh, so again, that's done something just out of total delusion. That seems to me very different then when it feels like we have to take an action that, you know, may, at the very heart of it, there may be an unwholesome aspect, but with as much discernment and as much compassion as we have, we undertake it. Mm. Ethical issues, I find tremendously interesting. You know, and even... uh, this is why the precepts 
really undertaking the precepts as a training and a practice in our lives is tremendously powerful because it often brings us right to the edge of ethical dilemmas. You know, if we've taken a precept not to kill, you know, or not to lie, you know, sometimes we're doing things I mean, when it come up sometimes, you know, uh, this is in the early years, uh, you know, and I'd be teaching in Canada. And just the visa question, you know, it was so easy to just come in while you come, oh, I'm going to visit friends. Yeah, I just <laughs> didn't have to deal with the whole visa. And but at a certain point, it, that, it just wasn't, the right thing to do, even though it caused a lot of what to my mind was unnecessary trouble and hassle and sometimes expense, you know, but just to be straight with, you know, sort of impeccable. And I just find as a life practice, striving for impeccability. And see, we, we may fall down many times and that's why the Buddha's take on it as a training rather than as a commandment. So it's not like, you know, if we fall down from impeccability, that somehow we're bad, we're a bad person, you know, we're sinful. No, it's, it's a training, but having that standard against which to train, I think is just an incredibly rich part of Dharma practice in our lives. Um, speaking of precepts, I practice them, as you're saying, as a training, and it's never perfect, and it's never done, and it's ongoing. The one that I find the hardest of all is uh, wise speech. <laughs> because, as we all know, we speak, they speak, everybody speaks. It's, it's an ongoing thing in the world. And it's constant. More so than not killing. Yes. Okay, so the comment was that <laughs> in, in the practice <coughs> of the preceptor's training, the one that she finds most difficult is the precept about right speech because it's ongoing. It's not like isolated activities. You know, most of us are speaking for a good part of every day, except when you're here, which is enjoy it. <laughs> you will miss it. <laughs> but it's precisely because of that that right speech as a training can be an amazingly powerful practice of mindfulness throughout the day. Because we are speaking a lot when we're off retreat. And to really pay attention to the motivation behind what we're about to say requires that we be attentive. You know, and so to take that on, if we did that, just that, 
fully. Probably going to say something heretical here, but you probably wouldn't even need to sit (laughs) in meditation (laughs) because just that mindfulness of speech and really doing that throughout the day and taking it on, you know, it keeps us very mindful. And I mean, I love that practice. One of the parts of it that I really love is, uh, you know, it's obvious and and maybe a little bit easier to refrain from angry or harsh speech or lies, or even though that can get subtle too. The one I really love to work with is useless talk. And the Pali word is perfect. The Pali word for useless talk is sampapalapa. You know, so it sounds just like what it is. Just some papalapa, some papalapa. <laughs> and I love it because in a social gathering, a social situation, it's so easy. I see myself do this so often. We're just kind of hanging out with friends, and I can see impulse arise in my mind just to say something that is totally useless. That really has no meaning at all. It's just a way of announcing here I am. <laughs> you know, as if people didn't realize that. <laughs> and so I love it in those moments when I can see that impulse just to some pop a lop. <laughs> and I'm mindful enough to see it. No, I don't have to say this. You know, it... It feels like this little victory over Mara, you know, and and this it really feels like there's there's that just sense of ease and letting go and kind of renunciate. We we can taste the sweetness of renunciation in that moment, you know. We're renouncing this useless speech. And we just drop back into ease and silence, so that. Sometimes you're expect, expected somehow to sum up a lapa because you're sort, of, you're sort of weird if you don't. So that's the very yes. point. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, you cannot go to a party and act like totally weird in the corner. You've got join. And that's, that's the very yes. point. Yes, yes. So the comment is that in our culture, you know, it's... And I think this is usual, probably all over the world. You know, social engagement often involves a lot of that. And so, as a beginning undertaking, how about refraining from every fifth sampapalap? <laughs> you know. So we don't have to create some kind of weird situation where we're never kind of interacting on that level. But really to take it in as a practice and saying that we don't have to say every thought that comes into our mind, even in social situations. You know? And on rare occasion, it might actually be possible to elevate the conversation. We shouldn't discount that possibility. <laughs> but I hope you see, I mean, this is... I love talking about this because it just points to the fact that 
Dharma practice is not just about sitting on the cushion, although obviously, you know, we're here and doing this and it's a very powerful form. But Dharma practice, this is our lives. This is everything we do. Our whole life is Dharma practice. And so we really want to see and understand and refine ways of practicing, of bringing it into our life in all of these very ordinary ways and activities. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So ways of practicing dana in everyday life. Uh, there's a practice which I have tried to do and practiced actually for many years, which I have found to be uh, radically transforming. And that is, and this goes back a long time now, that if I have a thought to give something, to do it, not to second guess myself, you know, because very often, and it's not that I'm purposely trying to have generous thoughts, although that could be its own practice, but this is more just paying attention to thoughts that are coming up in my mind, and if a thought comes to give in whatever way, whether it's, you know, material things or energy or whatever, thought of generosity comes to act on it. And sometimes it's really little things, and sometimes it's been really big things. Sometimes I shock myself. (laughs) I do. You know, I have a thought, whoa, am I going to do that? (laughs) (laughs) But mostly I've tried to act on it, and it's been amazing because I have never regretted it. You know, it always... Because it's such a wonderful feeling and, and uh, it's so intimately connected with metta. You know, because in that act of generosity, there's a very loving feeling being present. Um, and so it could be a practice to undertake. And again, it's not something that need to be undertaken, needs to be undertaken in some rigid way. So, you know, did I tell my house story? Okay. This is is kind of a boundary on, on this practice. So I lived, when we first started the center, it was open in 76, and for the first 13 years, I lived right in the center. And I lived in the building. When I hit 40, okay, enough of this. <laughs> uh, you know, I just felt like <laughs> I need to get out of communal living. Uh, and so I had a strong desire to just have my own space. But I had no, very little money at the time. And the house was just completely out of reach. Uh, and then with someone's amazing generosity, you know, with great resources, offered to build a house for Sharon and myself, you know, which is next door. It was like a miracle. It was this great, great gift. 
So when I first moved in, um, I started, I moved in, and I just sat for a month, self-retreat, you know, in the new house. And I started having all these thoughts, this is too nice. I shouldn't be living in such a nice space. You know, Dharma teachers should be living, I don't know how they should be living, but not like this. And, and I was feeling, okay, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna move out, I'm gonna give it to the staff, build a hut in the woods. <laughs> but then I started <laughs> thinking, well, what's going on here? You know, why am I feeling, feeling this way? Uh, and I saw that, you know, when I first moved in, I was embarrassed, that was the feeling. You know, it was an uncomfortable feeling. And so I was trying to avoid the feeling. But okay, I'm gonna just give it up and move out. And then I realized I would much rather feel embarrassed than move out of the house. <laughs> and so the embarrassment lasted a little bit and you know, it's been long gone. <laughs> and I've really enjoyed it. So that's a situation where a thought arose. Fortunately, it arose before I undertook this practice of acting on every thought of generosity. <laughs> but there might be you know, certain uh, boundaries to it, uh, although maybe not. Uh, but that is a practice of it that I have really found uh, uh, tremendously uh, moving and powerful. And as I said, there's the whole range, you know, just the impulse to do a little thing for somebody to act on it. I've been exploring the precepts and um, the second one. Um, for instance, I'll go out to my parents' place to visit them and then I'll ask for just about everything. Is somebody expecting a phone call? I'd like to make a phone call. Can I use the shower? And then at what point is it useful? At what point is it making things just more complicated, right. trying to be impeccable, right. and trying to see, is this obsessive? Yeah. Is this really useful, wholesome? Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the question, interesting question about the second precept. And so he says when he goes to visit his parents, uh, before doing almost anything, <laughs> will ask, you know, is it okay to take a shower now? You know, is it okay to use the phone? Are you expecting a phone call? And, you know, so where does this not taking what isn't offered, where does it become obsessive rather than a skillful practice of the precepts? I think in certain situations, and you could check this out, it would be an interesting conversation to have with your parents, but in many situations, I think we either know intuitively and out of common sense, or we can check it out, is there a presumption of things being offered? So you can make a general <laughs> you know, understanding with your parents. Yeah, there's a presumption that the food is being offered and the shower is being offered, and, and so you need not badger them <laughs> you know, with these questions each time. Uh, 
And even having that discussion, that could be the open, that could be the beginning of an interesting discussion with your parents. Of course, I, you know, I don't know them and I don't know how they hold all of this, but about the precepts and about your interest in really following this precept, you know. And you can, you can even acknowledge, and I could imagine this, uh, you know, in a discussion <laughs> like that with your parents, you know. You might say, I know this may sound ridiculous, <laughs> but I'm trying to follow this precept and this is what I'm thinking about. Right. You know, so it just becomes very open and, and, then, and then put to rest. You don't have to keep... Hmm. You know, one of Munindra's phrases, which he used so many times, uh, it's kind of a variation on simple but not easy, but this is a more... uh, general phrase about our relationship to things he would say so many times and I'm so grateful because it really established in me kind of a basic relationship to practice you know, and to life. He would say, be simple and easy about things. Just you know, be simple and easy. We don't need to overly complicate. But even in a situation like that, you could approach it in a simple and easy way in terms of having the discussion. So just a little story about Manindra and being simple and easy. He was a very quirky person. (laughs) He had a very quirky personality, which was very useful for me because it really punctured the illusion about how, you know, great Dharma teachers should manifest because he didn't (laughs) manifest in those ways. You know, he was just... quirky. <laughs> so in Bodh Gaya, sometimes we'd be in the bazaar and he'd be haggling with the peanut vendors, the people selling peanuts. He was a great bargainer. When he was here, when he was visiting here, we took him to a flea market. They did not stand a chance. <laughs> <laughs> he came away with Tons of stuff that he wanted to bring back to give away in India. <laughs> These poor people had never. <laughs> <laughs> so in Bodh Guy, he's bargaining, you know, for these five cents worth of peanuts. <laughs> and one guy, I can't remember whether it was me or somebody else, who said, Manindra, you keep saying, you know, be simple and easy. What are you, what are you doing? And he said, I said to be simple, not a simpleton. <laughs> so, so he was very engaged in the world in all his quirky ways. <laughs> quirky, quirky means what does quirky mean? Odd, yeah, odd. <laughs> Absolutely, without awareness. 
<laughs> okay, so the question was about uh, intentions that are not seen. And the example given, like in a, a sit that's quite concentrated, when the bell rings, she will often find herself, the, the hands will have moved, changed position, but without any awareness of it. And is this, is this better to be simple and easy about, or is this really consequential? I think there are many, many intentions that we miss. I mean, we, we miss many more than we catch because they're very subtle and they're happening all the time. You know. I think what's interesting in that situation is knowing or having seen that retroactively, you know, and looking back. So then you might set the intention at the beginning of a sitting to keep an eye out for it, you know, so that you're just including this one kind of unseen intention and see if you can make the unconscious conscious. You know, and I think we can do that not only in something as simple as, you know, a shift of the hand position, which I think is relatively inconsequential, but it could be patterns of speech, you know, where we look back, in looking back at something and seeing, I completely missed the intention for this, and it was harmful. So then we learn, okay, let me, <laughs> let me set the radar, you know, for that one and in so many different activities of our life. And I think that's what makes it interesting, because we really are then making the unconscious conscious. Now often in, the mind is a great mystery, you know, and probably the unconscious has been defined in a lot of ways depending on the um, discipline you know, whether in psychology or neuroscience or whatever, there's probably many different ways of understanding what's called the unconscious. But what I found in meditation, in at least one respect, I really began to feel that there's simply a threshold of awareness in the mind, and everything beneath that threshold is unconscious, and everything above it is in our conscious minds. And what I found, and I'm sure you found, that as the mind becomes quieter and more mindful, that threshold changes. And more of what was previously unconscious comes into the light of awareness. So that's a really interesting uh, development in our lives. So that's just, this is one very simple example of that. I don't quite know how to answer that question. <laughs> the question was whether the Bu it, when the Buddha was talking about consciousness as one of the five aggregates, whether he was talking about what I was just describing as this threshold of awareness. Consciousness is defined 
in the Buddhist psychology very precisely simply as the knowing faculty. I think that, and this is, I'm winging it here, (laughs) but I think that what I was talking about just now, it almost makes more sense to think of that in terms of the threshold of delusion, of ignorance, which one meaning of that is not knowing. You know, when we, when we don't know what's arising, so that's the function of delusion in the mind. Consciousness is still there. We're not unconscious in that sense. But it's just things are going on that we're not aware of. And so I would just see that as, as the threshold of delusion. Uh, but I wouldn't want to... Uh, get too tangled up in that question. <laughs> okay, gang. <laughs> okay. okay, quick one, easy one. <laughs> just, so we, just so we don't end on delusion. That's, <laughs> that, that's, that's the only motivation. <laughs> Okay, so uh, since I I don't want to give a three-hour talk on (laughs) silence or whatever, (laughs) just to keep it brief, Uh, how to practice with the reflection on death. There are many ways to do that, you know, and it's a classical Buddhist meditation. A way, one particular way, that I found very interesting was to take a period of time, and it could be five minutes, or it could be 10 minutes, where I'm with each breath, or each step, or hearing each sound, taking it to be my dying moment. So, and it's not, think, it's, not, it's not that the mind is thinking about taking it to be the dying moment. It's to really drop into what that would be like. It's amazing. I just, again, even for short periods of time, the mindfulness gets so vivid. You know, because, I mean, how would you want to be when you're dying? You know, if, if you're really in your dying moment and this movement is it, just dropping that in, it, in a completely effortless way, the mind gets v- amazingly vivid. You know? So that could be one way, which I, I found really helpful. In terms of having discussions about death and dying with people who don't want to really be engaging 
in those discussions, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like we we can't force our uh, our interests or even our understandings on people. It's just so. Why don't we just sit for a couple of minutes and let all the words drop into the silence? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.